0: Good morning and welcome to a Tuesday morning, August, excuse me, September the 7th edition of the Christian Underground News Network. I'm your host, Kurt Chamberlain, along with your co host, Pastor Dick Chamberlain, and our regular Tuesday guest, Dr. JB Hickson. Uh, We're going to be discussing, we're glad you tuned in today. We're going to be discussing something of great interest. Uh, to me personally, I, I've, I've studied this a lot, um, and uh, it's important information that, that we're going to need to know. Um, it's very critical that Christians understand uh, the subject matter today, which is going to be the relationship between Israel and the church. And there is a, a definite relationship, ladies and gentlemen, uh, as uh, JB will probably echo. Uh, We need to keep an eye on what's going on in Israel because Israel is in fact God's prophetic timepiece. How things go in Israel shows us directly what the signs of the times actually are and where we are at currently in Bible prophecy. So uh, get your note-taking utensils out right now and get ready because Doctor Hickson is about to is about to throw down some science on you here, folks. He's going to throw down the word in the right way. So, uh, JB, welcome this morning. Glad to have you back this morning. And, hey, great, uh,
1: great to be back. Always a, a pleasure to be on Christian Underground News Network. And uh, hopefully, you guys have had a good week. You and Pastor Dick, we we
0: have, we have,
1: awesome. Well, yeah, this is uh, this is a great topic that kind of flows out of what we talked about. Uh, last week, you know, last week on your program, I talked about why I believe in the pre-trib rapture, and right. I got a lot of great feedback from that. I'm I'm thankful that it was uh, helpful for some people. But one of the things that we uh, talked about last week was how uh, often those who who don't hold to a pre-trib rapture um, have really mischaracterized the view of those who do. And right. uh, I, I mentioned last week that I have a lot of uh, colleagues and friends that, that I uh, travel in the circles of eschatology with. We do Bible prophecy conferences together. We've spoken on the same uh, stages. And I really respect them, but they are not coming from the same perspective as we are in terms of pre-tribulationism. And usually they have a misunderstanding of what pre-trib is all about. And I really feel like if they would just uh, take the time to really listen and understand uh, our view, they would have a completely different perspective. So uh, I don't want to be too uh, critical of, of them, even though we believe they're wrong and we believe they're not connecting the dots of Scripture correctly. Um, but at the same time, I, I do think it's an important issue. And uh, I, I wish that they would really uh, stop uh, spreading misinformation about the pre-tribula- pre-tribulation rapture view uh, because it, it's not helpful and really it doesn't make them look good when they are basically having an argument that no one is having. So the reason I say all that is that the topic today obviously is connected to the pre-tribulation rapture. So for those who may be listening that aren't aware of kind of the history of uh, theology, at least conservative biblical theology. Uh, Broadly speaking, for many, many years, there have been two uh, schools of thought. One is what's called dispensational theology. The other is called covenant theology. And uh, contrary to what people will say, dispensational theology is not a recent development. Uh, In fact, the term dispensation is used multiple times in Scripture. It's the Greek word oikonomos, meaning economy or stewardship or dispensation. So it's been around since the time of Christ, since the Bible was written 2,000 years ago in the New Testament. So it's not a novel uh, idea. Uh, many people, again, uh, create these uh, false arguments, these straw man uh, arguments to, to claim that it was you know, created in the 19th century by Darby. Uh, what they don't understand is that's when it sort of got its name uh, and, uh, and w- became a more systematized approach uh, but the concepts of dispensational theology have been around from the time of, of the, that Paul wrote Ephesians, for example. Uh, it would be like saying that, you know, Calvinism, uh, you know, even though we understand that it came out of the Synod of Dort and it, it is, uh, you know, connected to Calvin and his followers. Uh, but those who hold to Calvinism, which we do not, uh, they certainly attempt anyway, not, not successfully in my view, but they attempt to tie it to Scripture. And, uh, and we want to be careful to point out that dispensationalism, similarly, even though in the history of theology it has kind of gotten different characterizations and come along uh, in, more, in the last couple of hundred years and kind of gotten a lot of books written about it and a lot of you know, details uh, coming together, it is rooted in the Scripture. So you've got two broadly speaking approaches, dispensational approach and a covenant approach. And I'm sure that your listeners uh, have uh, been well-versed from uh, Pastor Dick and other guests on your program on the uh, sort of the sine qua non, or the key components of dispensational uh, theology. And really, it boils down to three key uh, components. Uh, Dispensationalism, contrary, again, to a misconception that people have, is not a system of time periods or eras or epochs. uh, that, that is more of a result of dispensational theology, not the essence of dispensational theology, and depending on who you talk to, dispensationalists, because of their approach to Scripture, will categorize human history into different numbers of uh, ages, but that's not what dispensationalism is. Dispensationalism, first and foremost, above all else, is a hermeneutic, that is, it's a method of understanding Scripture And it is called the literal, grammatical, historical approach to scripture. And that is the only valid way to study scripture because it's the only valid way to read and understand any language. Every language, by its nature, has to be understood in its literal, grammatical, historical context. That's the way language was created. It uses subjects and verbs and nouns, it uses grammar and syntax, it uses cultural idioms and figures of speech. Uh, It uses words that have meaning within a certain uh, context or within a certain uh, historical time frame. Uh, So every language, it doesn't matter which language, whether it's the biblical languages of Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, or our own language of English, must be read and understood in its literal, grammatical, historical uh, concept te- text. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to understand anything. If right. if you just spiritualized everything and, and symbolized everything and made it out to be, you know, all languages like this hidden secret mystical code, nobody could uh, communicate. So words have meaning, context has meaning, and that's the essence of dispensational theology. If you look at, uh, for example, Charles Ryrie, wrote the the seminal work on dispensationalism. It was first published in the 60s called Dispensationalism Today, and then he's revised it many times. It's now still in print, just called Dispensationalism, and it is an outstanding uh, text and primer on what dispensationalism is, and the first of three key aspects of dispensational theology is a a consistent literal grammatical historical uh, hermeneutic. So let's just talk about that one for a second, because it relates to Israel and the church. Those who hold to covenant theology or any form of replacement theology, meaning they believe the church has replaced Israel as the uh, you know, apple of God's eye and the end all be all of God's prophetic program. That's called replacement theology. Uh, sometimes in theological circles, it's called supersessionism because they believe the church has superseded israel and israel is no more they had their chance they had their day in the sun and they failed and so god has cast them aside that's their view and nothing well,
0: could nothing could be further from the truth
1: absolutely and they base that view like all views on a a particular method of studying scripture that leads them to that conclusion and their mm-hmm. method of studying scripture contrary to the literal grammatical historical approach is called allegorical Mm -hmm. allegorical and by that we mean they uh, come at the scriptures and they're looking for the hidden deeper mystical meaning they're looking for the meaning that is between the lines or hidden underneath the words on the page right they
0: they use a hermeneutic that's that's connected to esotericism yes Uh, the esoteric knowledge is uh, yeah yeah
1: yeah. And so, and again, they, we're not disparaging them. We're, we're, we understand the history of it. And I can, I think I'll take the time right now to kind of give you the history of allegorical interpretation. It goes all the way back to the early church and uh, Origin. He's often called the father of allegorical interpretation. And then it was really uh, sort of crystallized and made popular through Augustine, who wrote the book City of God. And in that book, he suggested that we had misunderstood the Bible and the promises of the Old Testament. And they, since they hadn't happened yet, they must have all been meant to be taken spiritually, not literally. And so uh, the church, he said, uh, really is the kingdom. The church is the consummate fulfillment of all that God promised about the kingdom for Israel. And we are the new Israel. And of course, it was easy in ancient times to come to that conclusion, because we were living in a time when, first of all, Israel was no longer on the map, it had mm-hmm. ceased to exist, and the Roman Catholic Church was dominating and telling everyone they were the kingdom on earth, and the Pope was the king, and so if you go through the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages, and up until uh, really the the uh, pre-modern shift into the modern era, right around that time, say around the 18th century, uh, most people sort of put the shift into modernism and around the the, uh, storming of the Bastille. Uh, But anyway, up until that time, everybody just assumed, you know, you didn't have the printing press, you didn't have widely distributed uh, literature, people couldn't read the Bible, because of course, in the Catholic Church, if you were caught reading the Bible, they'd kill you. I mean, literally, only the priests were supposed to read the Bible, they would burn you at the stake. So, you know, you had really a a I believe, a, a satanic clamping down on biblical truth, and so mm-hmm. it's understandable that for centuries, you know, 14, 1,500 years, people sort of held to a replacement theology, uh, amillennial perspective, because in, in most cases, that's all they knew. Now, as a side note, we do know there, as I mentioned last week, there's a remnant in every century Uh, and the history shows this, and it's well documented, of people who did read the Bible and did understand the distinction between Israel and the church, and did understand the distinction between the second coming for the kingdom and the rapture for the church. Uh, But again, the predominant view uh, was, and frankly still is, uh, an erroneous view of replacement uh, theology. So if you think about the, the two different approaches to understanding scripture, literal, grammatical, historical, versus allegorical Mm -hmm. a literal grammatical historical view basically says look these words meant something to the original recipients that when david was promised a kingdom for example and the boundaries of that kingdom were spelled out geographically in great detail the the terms temple and throne and house and Mm -hmm. kingdom were all used in a way that in his day he would have understood what they meant when God promised him a kingdom forever uh, and that his seed would sit on the throne forever and ever and rule Israel David's mind didn't immediately go to oh that must be some spiritualized nebulous concept of him reigning in my heart no David lived in an era where nations had kingdoms and okay. even though he wasn't alive to see the temple built his son built it he understood what temples and 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 you know, houses for kings were he understood the brick and mortar aspect of it yes. and so and then you just see that passed down you know that was a thousand years before Christ when that promise was made you can go back to the time of Abraham a thousand years earlier than that 2000 BC and you can see promises made of a land blessing and certain boundaries of a kingdom that someday will rule the world. And um and and so the, the, the Bible has been promising and God has been promising through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and so on uh this coming kingdom. You get into the prophets and the minor prophets and the major prophets and you begin to see incredible references to details about the kingdom. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel, for example, Uh, gives nine chapters detailing the dimensions and architectural specifications of the coming kingdom, uh, the coming temple, rather. And so just read in its normal, plain sense, nobody would have understood the kingdom to be metaphorical or allegorical in any sense. And then you come to the first century in the time of Christ, And repeatedly throughout his three and a half year ministry, he refers to a literal kingdom. He talked about uh, the disciples reigning on 12 thrones with him. He talked about when he comes back, he's going to sit on the throne and, and rule the world uh the book of revelation talks about how when he comes back he will rule with a rod of iron and and he will uh you know be fulfill that promise uh, the disciples we know from scripture and from their interaction again in a literal grammatical historical normal plain language the way words are intended to be understood that they certainly expected a literal kingdom you know they wanted to know who would be the greatest when they got there and where would they sit and one of the disciples mothers talked about could, one of, could her two sons, uh, her two, the mother of two of the sons said, could my son sit on either side of you in the kingdom? Now, that certainly doesn't in any way indicate that they expected a spiritual or figurative kingdom reigning in, in Never Neverland, you know, in our hearts. So, uh, so we get no inkling whatsoever anywhere in the biblical text of a spiritualized kingdom. Uh, Jesus came to offer the kingdom. As long as in, he was there in his presence, the kingdom was at hand, the Bible says, but they rejected the kingdom. They crowned him with thorns instead of a king's crown. And then, in, and that was in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, by the way. Um, so he then ascended after his resurrection to the right hand of the throne of God, the throne in waiting, and he promised he would come again to take the throne as promised. So um, there's a real gap in understanding between, you know, replacement theology, Calvinist, amillennialist, covenant theologians, they're all kind of lumped in together. They have different nuances. Uh, You know, Calvinism typically deals mostly with the doctrine of salvation, but most Calvinists are replacement theologians. They don't have a eschatology, for example. They don't believe in a literal earthly future for Israel. Some do, so I don't want to be clear about that, but by and large, they're kind of lumped together. And versus those who believe, that the Bible's promises are unconditional. They're not contingent upon Israel's obedience, that God promised this. These were an I will statement to Abraham and that uh, the, cu- the kingdom has never been fulfilled to the extent and to the degree that the Bible promised that it would. And therefore we know there's a future for national Israel. Uh, the right. Antichrist is going to sit on the throne from Jerusalem in a rebuilt temple Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and reign. Well, he cannot do that if there's no Israel and there's no future for uh, Israel. For sure. So again, it all comes down to your what, what we call uh, in theological circles, your hermeneutic or your Bible study method. And by the way, I might mention we have at notbyworks.org, we actually have a course on Bible study methods. It's one that I've taught for many years, both at the college and graduate levels. It's very well put together. It's all self-guided, self-study, You can uh, take it at your own pace. It's got all the reading assignments and the the study questions, and there's a final exam. You can take it just for personal edification, or if you want to take it and transfer that credit into a different school for credit, there's different schools that will take that uh, three credit hours for that course. So if you're interested, you can just check that out at notbyworks.org. And then on the highlight carousel, if you just keep scrolling through, you'll come to one announcement that talks about our Bible study methods course. But that's really the difference between, you know, dispensationalism and covenant theology. It's, it's all about how you approach the scripture. And we believe that the only proper way to approach the scripture is in its literal, grammatical, historical uh, context. And if yeah. you do that, you will inevitably arrive at a distinction between God's program for Israel and God's program for the church. Now, uh, I think you mentioned off air that uh, Pastor Dick is going to be starting a series on Saturdays on mysteries in the Bible. A mystery is yes. information, uh, revelation that has not been revealed in the o- Old Testament, but is being revealed in the New Testament. And uh, the church is clearly and plainly called a mystery, meaning it was not mentioned in the Old Testament. It you is just a, taught half of my lesson. I just taught half of your lesson? Well, you can send me a check. So, uh, so, so you know, the New Testament comes along and adds information to God's plan of the ages, but New Testament revelation can never fundamentally change Old Testament revelation. For example, let's just take David again. God promised David a king, uh, I mean, a kingdom, a temple and a a uh, throne inside that temple and let's just say for the sake of argument that what god really meant and this is what replacement theologians and covenant theologians teach is what god really meant when he said that to david a thousand years before christ was that well you're going to get to watch from heaven as a spiritual or allegorical kingdom unfolds within the heart of individuals And they are sort of in a nebulous, mystical way, you know, experiencing a kingdom life, you know, your kingdom now theology. Well, just think about that if you're David. First of all, you know, he's in heaven today. And unless God has clued him in on what he really meant, again, hypothetically, then David is still up there in heaven to this day, 3,000 years later, waiting and expecting a kingdom. Right. But secondly, even beyond that, um, because you know, covenant theologians would argue, well, I'm sure God, you know, let David in on the secret, and he's he's fully aware now that he didn't really mean literal kingdom. But what about all the Old Testament saints through the centuries and Jews and others who who were the recipients of First and Second Samuel, where this kingdom right. was promised? And what about the Jews who, up until the time of Christ, were reading? all of the prophets who talked about the fulfillment of David's promise, it's called the Davidic covenant, all of them expected and believed in a literal kingdom, Um, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, there's a disingenuineness there if the original recipients of information could not have possibly understood it until the church age when God corrected himself and changed the meaning of what he had originally said a thousand years ago, and that's what replacement theology does their whole hermeneutic is that the new testament really tells us what the old testament means and that is not correct in fact in my hermeneutics class my bible study methods class one of my questions on one of the exams is do you have to read the new testament to understand the old testament and the answer is not only yes it's an emphatic yes and it has to be yes Because otherwise, you've got chaos. If I'm reading something, and in reality, I can't understand it until I have information that comes a thousand years later, like the New Testament did from the time Mm -hmm. of David, how could I possibly understand it? I'm going to be dead by the time that revelation comes. So it's meaningless, but it's not meaningless. You can understand revelation in the time in which it was given. There's nothing mystical about it. God, when the quill hit the sheepskin under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God intended to communicate something to the Old Testament saints, and that is very easy to understand. So, the, so later revelation or New Testament revelation can never change the meaning of Old Testament revelation. What it does is it fills in gaps. It gives more information. It adds additional information to, but it cannot jettison the original promises of the Old Testament because again, that make, essentially, that makes God a liar. God said one thing, and then a thousand years later, he comes along and says, oops, just kidding. What I really meant was this. So if you, you know, understand the Bible and practice a consistent, literal, historical, grammatical approach to understanding the words on the page, you will inevitably arrive at the fact that there is still a future for Israel, and then even the New Testament plainly talks about this. Paul talks about this in Romans 9 through 11, that he's not through with Israel. The deliverer is going to eventually come out of Zion, and then the Old Testament promises will be fulfilled. So it really is a, a hermeneutical issue. And uh, you know, we, we don't ever see on the, in the annals of history any reference to a spiritualized kingdom, again, until about three or 400 years after Christ. And, and let's, let's try to understand that in, in its context. So here you are. You're, you know, a first century believer who may have even seen Christ while he was alive before the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension into heaven. And so you heard about him talk about his return and heard about how he's going to set up his kingdom and um heard of him talk, for example, uh, the day before the triumphal entry when he told the disciples that depending on their faithfulness here on earth, it would be given greater stewardships in the kingdom, they might be put in charge of 10 cities or five cities, you, you, under, you heard all that, so you have obviously an expectation, as anyone would, that there's going to be a literal kingdom. So you begin in, you know, we're talking, you know, Christ's resurrection was in 33 AD. So let's talk about early days of the church. It's the 40s. It's the 50s. You're talking with other believers, talking with your children, reminding them to look up and be watchful because as Jesus said, our redemption is drawing nigh. He's going to come back. Just wait. It's going to be great. He's going to destroy Rome. He's going to take the throne and rule, but he hadn't come back yet. So you fast forward another few decades. Now you've got grandchildren and uh, you're getting very old, and you're, you might be dying before long, but you're still telling those grandchildren, hang on, he's coming. I talked to him. I heard him. I've talked to the apostles. I lived with them. I know this promise of a kingdom. It's coming, and uh, then it doesn't happen. You pass on. Now your children and grandchildren are passing on the same message. By now, we have the New Testament teaching, which clearly teaches that he's coming back. They're using that. To, to reinforce what they've heard literally from their own ancestors who were walking and talking with Christ. But you get into the, you know, second century, third century, multiple generations have passed. People's hope begins to wane the great uh, uh, blessed hope that they've been looking for hasn't happened. They, they haven't seen the fulfillment of these promises in the old Testament of a kingdom. And, uh, and so people, as is just still the case today, Tend to interpret scripture through the lens of culture and, 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 and experience instead of letting the scripture speak for itself. And so that's when Origen and Augustine, as I mentioned, come in the scene and they began to popularize this notion of a metaphorical kingdom. And that kind of ruled the day for hundreds upon hundreds of years. And it wasn't until, you know, we, we had the proliferation of translations of the Bible and the printing press and the modern era was well underway. That people began to read the Bible for themselves, and as they should, they understood. Oh, this says pretty clearly Christ is going to come back and rule on on the throne, and I no reason to think that's not going to happen. And right. so then you do have some early, at least in America. Uh, you know, uh, the Bible conference movement and the Bible college movement in the late 20th, early uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries that began to uh, teach these views and, and, and it became very popular. And so now today we have quite a, a number of churches throughout the world who handle the Bible correctly and, and do not jettison the promises uh, uh, you know, to Israel. They see a distinction between uh, Israel and the church. So I hope that makes sense in terms of kind of the background uh, of, uh, you know, where where we are today in you know, with the distinction between Israel and the church. Many people think that, quote, dispensational theology, which they think is sort of a made up thing, even though it's a biblical term and a biblical teaching, is crazy because we are still expecting a future for Israel. Uh, but of course, lo and behold, in 1948, after World War II, uh, with the uh, Zionist movement, and I'll talk more about that. Uh, here in uh, in just a moment but uh, they began to really think oh maybe there's something to this yeah. because you know another b- sort of problem that aided and abetted replacement theology for 1500 years was the fact that there was no israel on the map israel didn't exist it was just an ancient biblical city you know like nineveh or something right and uh or, or you know ancient biblical country in the case of israel but mm-hmm. all of a sudden You know, Israel is reconstituted as a nation. People begin to come back to the land and people begin to say, oh, maybe there's going to be, you know, a a future for national Israel after all. Well, you know, we didn't need May 15th, 1948 to happen when Israel was gained statehood again. uh, If you believe the Bible, if you take the Bible at face value and uh, understand it to be the infallible word of God, everyone who does that has been looking for a future for Israel all along. But it's sure, as we talked about um, a few sessions ago, it sure was a key sign that we could be getting close uh, yeah. because now we have an Israel uh, on the map. So I mentioned uh, a moment ago that, that Charles Ryrie, anyway, suggests there are three really distinctions that make you a dispensationalist. If you, if you hold to these three things, you are a dispensationalist. So one of those, is a literal, grammatical, historical approach to the Bible. We've talked about that. The other, which flows from that, is recognizing a distinction between God's program for the church and God's program for Israel. Okay. And then the third, which is a little less commonly talked about, but is still important, and it also flows from that literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, is the overarching, uh, what we call the doxological view of god in human history that ultimately what god is doing is bringing himself glory uh, and that's in contradistinction to a replacement theologian or covenant theologians viewpoint which says the purpose of god in human history is individual redemption so covenant sees everything about me and you being saved by faith in christ and it's all about individual redemption so therefore they downplay or ignore the national promises of redemption to Israel. So they read everything in the Old Testament. They they call it the scarlet thread of redemption. And every little story in the Old Testament, they spiritualize it and make it this this big giant metaphor about how you and I can avoid hell. Well, we certainly believe that God is uh, seeking individual redemption. And that is part of his plan is to redeem mankind from the curse of sin. But he's doing much more than that. He's redeeming the whole planet from the curse of sin. He's, yeah. he's He's got a plan for angels. In fact, Jesus tells us that, that the, the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his fallen angels. Uh, he's got a plan for demons then. He's got a plan for animals. He's got a plan for the, the creation. And he's got a plan for you and me, which is that we by faith trust in him and be uh, rescued from the penalty of sin. So it's just a slight, subtle difference. It's not, you know, something that would be kind of a leading difference between dispensationalism and covenant theology, um, but it is important to understand that, you know, when you start to spiritualize the text, you can find anything you want in there. It's kind of like the Bible code, you know. It is so, so much. yeah. So, so, but we believe in letting the text speak uh, for itself. So, uh, so if you consistently follow a literal grammatical historical approach to scripture you will inevitably uh, conclude that there's a distinction in god's program for israel and god's program for the church and it's important to say it that way sometimes we'll say there's a distinction between the church and the israel and israel well covenant guys and and calvinists and other amillennialists they'll say yeah of course there is Israel was God's old plan. The church is His new plan. Yeah. So and yeah. and they so we want to be careful to say there's a distinction between the program for Israel, which is ongoing, has not been fulfilled, still has a future, and the mm-hmm. present program for the church. Um, but it will also lead you, if you if you practice a consistent literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, to the conclusion that uh, while God is certainly seeking. Uh, to redeem lost mankind and that's what the atoning work of christ at calvary is all about the atonement wasn't only about that it was it was clearly about that but it was also about the removing the curse of sin from the whole earth so remember it's because of sin that roses have thorns and you know there's poison ivy and hurricanes and tornadoes and the whole earth groans as paul says in romans 8 so the, the, the adam and eve's fall did not simply and only affect mankind it affected everything uh mm-hmm. and christ's atoning work paid the price for that and uh and ultimately god's going to make all things new yes. and if, if along the way he had chosen he didn't because we have his word so we know we'll know what we what his plan is but if he had chosen to send everybody to hell that's to bring himself glory he could have done that it's all about bringing him glory sure. um and I want to be careful to point out that because I, I'm hearing the objections in my mind, having taught on this so many times through the years and in live classroom settings and conference settings, I've had you know, thousands literally of conversations with Calvinists. I'm hearing them screaming at the radio or the, their podcast smartphone if, if they're listening, because they're saying, well, what about the Westminster Confession? We believe that the chief end of man is to bring God glory. Yeah, that's right. That's also true. But we're not talking about the chief end of man we're talking that's about right. god's ultimate purpose right. god's ultimate purpose ultimate purpose is to bring himself glory not simply to save mankind so right. covenant theologians have no place for israel and and uh, you know that 16% of bible prophecy that's yet to be fulfilled they basically see everything through the lens of soteriology or the doctrine of individual salvation and yeah. they're trying to you know all of the old testament passages, they turn them into giant metaphors about individual salvation from sin. And what's interesting is it, it makes for fascinating preaching. When you get to take the biblical text and do whatever you want with it and make it into these really oh, yeah. incredible stories, wow, people yeah. flock to your teaching you know uh right. and and they, you're considered very insightful and brilliant even and and look at what you you know i how come i never see anything in the text like this great preacher does well it's because it's not there you know he's bringing into the text so if yeah. you if your interpretation starts in the fanciful machinations of your mind then you can turn the text into anything you want
0: um, yeah, you know you're you're bringing up an interesting point about interpretation and i uh, Along these lines, I would I would remind people of what Second Peter chapter two, verses twenty and twenty one say.
1: That, yeah,
0: uh, yeah. That, no that prophet,
1: no, no yeah, prophecy
0: of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Right. Uh, for, yeah. for prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost.
1: That's right. They, they did. And so it's got, you know, meaning originates in the mind of the author, not in the mind of the reader. Amen. Let me say that again. Meaning originates in the mind of the author, not in the mind of the reader. Amen. And who is the ultimate author, as you just read from Second Peter? You can see the same thing in 2 Timothy 3, That's right. uh, as, as all scripture is God breathed or uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit who is the ultimate author of scripture god God. so we don't get to tell god what he means he tells us what he means you know that's exactly right and and, you know and and language has to be that way by the way you know no communication would be possible if the listener uh got to determine what the speaker says yeah so for example if i said to you uh, uh, Curtis, I, I really am thankful for being on your program today. Uh, but I've only got an hour and I, we need to, you know, wrap this up in another 15 or 20 minutes. And you, as the listener, said you heard me say that, and then you thought to yourself, What I think JB means by uh, we need to wrap this up in 20 minutes is I'd like to take my dog for a walk. Well, I mean, that's absurd. There's no logical explanation for that. You're just making stuff up in your head. And the same thing is true for allegorical method of of Bible interpretation. Nobody in the Old or New Testament alike, and even several centuries after the first century, ever conceived of the notion that the promises of a kingdom were metaphorical, nebulous, and intended to be fulfilled in our hearts in some intangible, subjective way. Everybody reading those words understood what the author of them meant, that it's a literal brick and mortar, geographic boundaries, earthly kingdom centered in Jerusalem in the nation of Israel. So, uh, you know, you can think of all kinds of illustrations, and I've talked about this in other conferences and in in some of my uh, books. But, you know, if, if meaning originates with the listener, then think about this hypothetical conversation. A uh, student in a math class uh, is asked on a quiz what two plus two is and the student writes five, two plus two is five the student says well the teacher of course marks it wrong. And when the student gets his paper back he goes he sees that it was marked wrong he goes up to the teacher and says. You know, I've got a problem here and the teacher says what is it well it's this problem right here and the teacher looks at it two plus two is five and the teacher says what's the issue that's clearly wrong and the student says, well, you said two plus two but I thought you meant two plus three. Well now who's right, you know if meaning gets to originate with the reader, then we can never have any absolute truth, because meaning, you know, it gets into you know every time you order a a Big Mac at McDonald's and they give you a fillet of fish you can say you you have no recourse because the clerk says, "Well, you said Big Mac, but what I took you to mean was filet of fish." So yeah. enjoy your lunch, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's just utter chaos if if meaning originates with the reader or with the listener. And so again, it sounds good, it sounds spiritual, but you know words have meaning in their uh, context. And over the years, I've seen some pretty egregious examples of allegorizing the text I remember when I was in academics uh, full-time I spent about 12 years uh, both teaching and also in administration uh, at the college level and then later in the graduate level at a seminary and I remember we had a conflict one time where a a, one of our adjunct no actually he was a full-time professor he was a young guy very well liked incredible speaker very articulate gifted speaker and he taught a lot of uh classes on youth ministry and other you know kind of classes for young student younger students uh, but he also taught um, Bible study methods and uh, it was in a bible study methods class that he was given an example of how to interpret scripture and he uh, you know basically suggested that uh, the uh, the the description in in the Bible of the Uh, Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim and seraphim and all of these other things, Aaron's rod and so forth that were in this Ark, that that was a, uh, a metaphor for the human body, specifically a woman's reproductive system. And he literally had diagrams. He had, you know, this was before PowerPoint. So he had like overhead transparencies where he, you know, the cherubim and seraphim for the fallopian tubes. And I, I'll just, I won't go much further. But it was, but the students were like, wow, this guy's fascinating. This guy must be really spiritual that God revealed to him all of this symbolism, you know? And uh, and but fortunately, there was one at least one student in there who uh, knew better and reported it to the dean, which was me, and and we we had a conversation <laughs> with that with that <laughs> faculty member. So again, there's no end to what you can make the text say when the meaning originates up here. Right. And and we've got to avoid that mistake when we come to scripture let god
0: say what god said
1: period yeah it's not it's it's not crazy you know the reason the bible has gotten a reputation for being complicated is first of all because satan is the author of confusion unlike god uh because if god's not the author of confusion then who is there's only one other option it's satan so uh you know and satan's trying to confuse people but you know the, the the bible is not that complicated you know, people, it's the way people handle it that makes it complicated. For example, right. you know, nobody would pick up a, you know, Tom Clancy novel and randomly turn to page 250 in the third paragraph down and start reading and wonder why they don't understand anything about what's going on. And yet that's exactly what people do with the Bible. They'll randomly pull passages out of context without taking the time to to ask simple questions like who wrote it? To whom was it written? When was it written? What was the historical context? What's the theme? What's the argument? What happens right before this sentence? What happens right after this sentence? And if you read the Bible the way literature is intended to be readed in its literal, grammatical, historical sense, you'll understand the Bible perfectly clear. Um, I mean, of course, there are some theological Um, deeper truths that take some good studying and some good theological synthesis cross-referencing one passage to another Uh, but by and large the bible is really not hard if you read it and understand it uh, correctly Um, you know the uh, a good example of how not to interpret the bible is the way we many of us have and i've been guilty of this in years past Uh, especially as a young uh, student of the word and a young pastor is we will frequently read old Testament historical narratives uh, that are telling a story and we will spiritualize them. Uh, For example, take the story of uh, Joseph, which uh, Genesis has a great deal to say about Joseph. A good portion of Genesis is about the life of Joseph. Mm -hmm. And your listeners probably know that uh, Joseph was one of Jacob's sons, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And uh, so uh, let's take the story of Joseph uh, and Potiphar's wife. If you recall, he was serving under Potiphar. Uh, Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph. He fled and, uh, and wouldn't have any part of it. And many people have preached that and taught that passage as, as teaching, for example, you know, how to avoid adultery. Well, okay. let's look at Joseph and, and find out. Well, the fact of the matter is that's not that's not good Bible teaching, because mm-hmm. uh, we could just as easily pick any other component of that historical narrative and elevate it to some type of spiritual uh, principle. Like right. we could, what, what if I taught that passage and I said uh, five reasons why you should never work for an Egyptian? There you right. go. I mean, that's yeah. part of part of the story. Joseph was working mm-hmm. for an Egyptian, so you know we need to understand. And this gets into a little bit more of the weeds about how to, you know, different Bible study methods. But, you know, each type of literature was intended for a certain purpose to a certain audience and written in a certain way. Uh, You know, we don't read the phone book. Of course, nobody reads a phone book anymore. I'm showing my age a little bit, but we don't read a phone book the same way we read a novel or the same way we read a love letter from our wife or the same way we read an instruction manual on how to build a bicycle. So, but it's all using English. The Bible is the same way, even in our English translations. If you pick up your Bible and just randomly turn to any historical narrative, you're going to see in our English translation, it's justified, full justified in columns like a newspaper, right, full right, left justified, and it reads like a narrative. But if you turn to poetic or wisdom literature like Proverbs or Psalms, it's going to be look different in our on the page because it's a different type of literature, Uh, epistolary literature. Uh, in the New Testament, letters, they they have a certain form. And you know we need to understand that form. But uh, back to the difference between Israel and the church, which is what our real focus is uh, uh, today on the program. what I what I really want listeners to understand is that when people tell you there is no future for national Israel, yet they still believe, that Christ himself was born of a virgin in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, they are actually indicting themselves for an inconsistent method of Bible interpretation. Let me yeah. explain. They, t- they read the Old Testament prophecies that relate to Christ's first advent, such as Isaiah seven 14, he'll be born of a virgin, or Micah 5, 2, that he'll be born in Bethlehem. And they take those, as they should, and the only way they can take them as literal grammatical historical right? right so so when they read the first the prophecies related to the first advent of christ they are practicing proper hermeneutics but inexplicably and for no justification when they read prophecies sometimes even in the same paragraph by the same prophet that speak of christ's second coming and the circumstances surrounding it that the governments will be upon his shoulders that uh, the whole earth will know of him from the least to the greatest, that Mm -hmm. the the kingdom temple will have these dimensions and these beautiful decorations and adornments. And so when they read all of that, they turn off their common sense method of interpretation and click on their allegorical method and they cast it all aside and say, oh, that's just one big giant metaphor. And there's no textual justification for that. It's just their own presupposition, their own false... Notion that they've been influenced to believe because of hundreds of years of replacement theology that's yeah. leading them to do that. Right. So so it's not I, about
0: I love, I love your phone book analogy, you know, because uh, that, that really simplifies it. If you open your phone book and you're looking for somebody's name and, and phone number, and the phone number says uh 6745502, you don't automatically think to yourself, well, they it says five five oh two. I'm betting that this means 5505 and you don't dial 5505 expecting to get that person, do you?
1: No absolutely you
0: somebody not. Somebody all the way across town.
1: Yeah see? yeah it you can lead to together. some it can lead to some really difficult situations when you get to, to determine what the passages mean. So who determines meaning? The author It's our job to discover the meaning not mm-hmm. determine it, but to discover it. Yeah, um, right. And, you know, a lot, a lot of times people will come up to me with a, a passage of scripture that they're having trouble understanding, and they'll say, can you help me understand this passage? And I'll say, well, what do you think it means? And they'll say, well, I really haven't determined the meaning yet. And I'll say, well, if you're trying to determine the meaning, you're never going to get there. You should right. be trying to discover the meaning. The Mm -hmm. meaning is already determined by God. There's only one meaning. Singularity of meaning is another fundamental principle of of hermeneutics of how to study the Bible. It's our job to discover it. It's like, you know, panning for gold. You don't get to find a piece of fool's gold, pyrite, and just declare by fiat that this is gold. I mean, what do you think you are, the Federal Reserve? You can just declare money out of thin air? Uh, No, you don't get to do that. It's either gold or it's not it has yeah. an inherent value. And the same yeah. thing is true for meaning. Meaning exists. Yeah. Meaning exists. And it, in the case of the Bible, it was it, it went from the, being in the mind of God to the mind of the human author through the pen and onto the sheepskin or papyrus or whatever it was. And it's our job using the normal rules of language to discover what that meaning uh, is. So it's a very important point that You know, replacement theologians and covenant theologians and the like, they believe in and practice literal grammatical historical hermeneutics, but only some of the time. They're not consistent. That's right. right. They're not consistent. And that's the key. And by the way, Mm -hmm. to be fair, you know, dispensationalists throughout history have been some of the worst offenders at yeah. spiritualizing the text, you know, so, you know, it's a common problem, we all tend to drift away from the consistent literal grammatical historical approach, you know, I think of guys like F.W. Grant and the, the Numeric Bible and uh, A.C. Gabeline and uh, others who have spiritualized the text, for example, uh, even in modern times, we've had people that take the, uh, the view of Revelation 2 and 3 uh, that's called the panoramic view of history view, where each of the seven literal churches somehow symbolically represents a different time period in the last 2000 years, which oh, I completely you. disagree with that. Again, yeah. it makes for great preaching. It's it's interesting. There's some interesting parallels. and But can we say definitively from the text that that's what those passages mean? No. And when we do, then we're really opening ourselves up to a criticism Because we're making the same mistake that our covenant friends do when they uh, when they suggest and teach replacement theolo- theology so, right. right. So, yeah, so the so the so now to close out, because I know we've only got about 10 minutes left. I want to I want to talk about modern Zionism and the role of Israel yeah. in the present day, because having established, I hope anyway. Uh, that the Bible teaches a literal future for Israel, that the promises made to Israel have yet to be fulfilled, Mm -hmm. Uh, we then, as good Bible students, look for with great anticipation that coming time when, you know, we will rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom as promised us, and and there will be the ultimate son of David, king of kings and lord of lords, sitting on the throne, reigning, Uh, we look forward to that. But how do we correlate that to what's going on in Israel today? So Zionism is one of those words that a lot of people use, but it means completely different things uh, depending on the context. And I know there's one uh, podcaster, Christian podcaster that I listen to uh, that I get a lot of valuable information from, but he is not coming from the same perspective theologically. He is a replacement theologian. He doesn't believe in a distinction between the program for Israel and the program for the church. And he doesn't believe in the rapture. And he frequently criticizes uh, Zionists like C.I. Schofield and other great dispensationalists because uh, he thinks there's, you know, uh, wrong. And he actually goes further than that. and really criticizes them for some off the wall stuff. So uh, he does that because he, rightly has done the research and understands that there are a lot of evil, even Luciferian connections to modern day governments in Israel. And, And even though that might sound blasphemous to someone who's been sort of brainwashed into thinking that Israel today can do no harm and they get a free pass on everything if they blow up a children's party in Gaza of a bunch of Muslims, it's good for them, get those Muslims, or if they kill a bunch of innocent civilians in Gaza, good for them, you know, we've been brainwashed to think that Israel can do no wrong, and, and people just haven't taken the time to actually do the research and understand that many of the government leaders in modern day Israel today are directly tied to the Luciferian conspiracy, and are not good guys, and this shouldn't be that hard to understand, because if we read the Bible, we know that Israel has a long history of having bad cats in the driver's seat of their country, absolutely, I mean,
0: without question. Yeah,
1: yeah, Ahab and you know, Jezebel. We could go on and on. Yeah, so yeah. this isn't rocket science to figure out. But you know, people they tend to, uh, sadly, worship the ground that people like Bibi Netanyahu walk on, and they don't know anything about yeah. Netanyahu. And that guy is not a believer, and he's not a good yeah. guy. Just take the time to look it up. So we need to separate in our mind uh, what might be called you know theological zionism the Mm -hmm. belief that god's promises to israel are unconditional that that israel is god's chosen nation that he has a future for the apple of his eye as as israel is called in the bible from modern day israel the jews did not return to the land in 1948 in belief they were when the bible begins to fulfill the promises to israel That ultimately, by the way, are global promises because the worldwide kingdom under Christ's rule is going to emanate from Jerusalem. Uh, when that begins to happen, the Jews will be returned to the land in belief. And that's what Paul says in Romans 10: is how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? Before they can call on the name of the Lord and be delivered into the kingdom, like Joel 2 promises, they've got to first believe individually. In the good news of salvation through Christ alone, so and the
0: Bible says they need a sign in order to believe. We 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 believe that that might be the rapture. We don't know that for sure, but it, yeah. it's probably a good indicator that it's the rapture.
1: Yeah, no, I think that could very easily be the sign. Is when mm-hmm. they see that they begin to connect the dots and realize that they've been misled and that Scripture is true and God's Word is faithful and so on and so forth. So, so but so today. You know, we, we I believe uh, that we support modern day Israel, A, because they're our ally, right. uh, pretty much our only ally in that area. I'm not even sure we're going to have Turkey for much longer. Um, agree. And, and so, but we don't support Israel because of Genesis 12 and that they're somehow under some kind of divine protection. You know, if, if Israel, you know, were to one of the evil leaders of Israel were to somehow convince them to uh, turn on the United States, I would have no trouble defending ourselves and retaliating there. You know, people have stretched the meaning of Genesis 12 way too far to say that any that Israel gets a free pass. They can do anything they want and we don't have the right to retaliate. That's wrong. What Genesis 12 is saying is that in the kingdom. Someday, God is going to bless those who bless Israel and curse those who don't, because Israel will be the the center stage of the Messiah himself. Uh, And so we just need to be open and honest and transparent about what's going on. And and when when Israel is doing good things, we should support them and help them. And by the way, we've funded them to the tune of trillions of dollars and built their entire military. And, uh, And there's a lot of chatter. And I've talked about this in my what in the world is going on series right now about how Israel and the, and the evil leaders in modern day Israel could be, uh, you know, conspiring against us, believe it or not. Yeah, so, absolutely. so, so we just need to be logical and separate sort of political Zionism and theological Zionism and historic Zionism, understand the different nuances between the two.
0: Yes. I'm, I'm glad you said it, put it that way. I I was going to interject a little earlier and say, we need to, we need to be aware of the differences between theological Zionism and political Zionism, two, That's two a, totally separate issues. Right. Right. Totally, Agreed.
1: totally.
0: And now JB, uh, I know that we're, we're about to close out here. Um, uh, but could you tell us please what, um, uh, part seven is going to be of the series? Uh, well, I'm,
1: I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I wanted to be sure and mention for our, our listeners, uh, both at the Not By Works uh, podcast and also Christian Underground News Network podcast, because this will be posted on both. Uh, I'm actually leaving tonight to speak at a conference in Alaska that's been scheduled for many, many, oh, actually a couple of years. It kept getting canceled because of COVID. And uh, so I'll be speaking seven times over four days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, five days, and um, and in three different uh, settings up there. And so we will not meet tomorrow night, Wednesday night, uh, September the 8th. So there will be no live stream at at Plum Creek Chapel in uh, Sedalia, Colorado, a suburb of Denver. We will not have our midweek service. So part seven, we'll have to wait another week, but on September the 15th, we are going to uh, have the next installment in what in the world is going on, part seven. And I hesitate to say what it's gonna be about because I'm not 100% sure, but if you won't, hold me to it if over the next week i feel uh, led to change it my my inkling uh, in part seven is to talk about secret societies and go to scripture first and talk about truth and you know the light versus darkness truth versus lies and how what satan always does is done in secret and then i'm going to trace some of the more prominent it's kind of ironic to use the word prominent when you're talking about a secret society but over time there's been a lot of research done and so we we, we know uh, a lot of these secret societies, and I, I talk about them in my book, Great Last Day's Deception, and also in Spirit of the Antichrist and so forth in passing, but I want to dedicate, this is my plan anyway, unless it changes, part seven to highlighting, you know, groups like Skull and Bones, Bohemian Grove, CFR, Bilderberg, and, and other groups like that.
0: Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> see, I, I've studied that for many, many years, so. Uh, I, I know where you're going with that and boy I'll tell you what I, it, it once you get deep into it you you can understand exactly what's you can see the clearly the Luciferian uh, goal oh and, yeah and the scarlet thread if you will that runs through the whole thing yep. and uh, so that's really important information I would recommend that anybody that's out there listening to us right now that you don't miss that uh, on the 15th.
1: Yeah, really looking forward to it. And and in the meantime, uh, we've got plenty of uh, other uh, things that you can be watching. If you've not caught up on all six parts of what in the world is going on, And I know we're adding new listeners and viewers all the time. Just remember that uh, all six parts in in video form are available at notbyworks.org. Just hover over the video menu, sub menu will pop up and you'll see what in the world is going on. Or if you prefer to listen to the audio only, just go to any uh, podcast provider, search for Not by Works Ministries, and then you'll see in date order, uh, you can go back and find all six of those uh, sessions, uh, what in the world is going on. So important stuff, important to stay abreast of what's going on in this world, and, uh, yeah. and uh, yeah, it's been a great, great to be with you again today, and really uh, looking forward to coming back on uh, next week. Even though I'll be in Alaska, we're going to try to work out a time, as we discuss where I can record and be on next week. Mm-hmm
0: absolutely we would not miss that for the world my brother thank you again for being with us uh this tuesday i really appreciate it and thank you for the information uh about israel and the church and the correlation um it, it's really important that uh, christians understand these things as they relate to contemporary times and where we are in bible prophecy so thank you for that jb i really appreciate that um uh, and for our listeners, we thank you for joining us uh, once again today. We pray that you will uh, be with us this coming Saturday for our ongoing series in Galatians. No, no, we're moving to a different subject. We're moving to mysteries. That's right. Oh, boy. That's going to tie in a lot with what we talked about today, JB. And so uh, be sure and be with us this coming Saturday for... Pastor Dick's ongoing series in ministries, and be sure not to miss J.B. next week when he's with us on on Tuesday. Uh, Until then, this is the Christian Underground News Network signing off. May God bless and keep you.